Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Jerome and Augustine are two of the most influential Latin Christians of the first millennium of Christianity. This episode will introduce you to their lives, personalities, and some of their most important ideas. You'll see how significantly asceticism affected their lifestyles, as well as how their particular take on Christianity came to set the norm for Roman Catholic Christianity for centuries to come. Here now is episode 498, Early Church History Part 16, Jerome and Augustine. Jerome was actually called Eusebius Sophronius Hieronymus, but everybody just calls him Jerome, at least in the English-speaking world, and I'm not about to break that tradition. But he lived from 347 to 419, right around the same time as Pacomius and Basil and a lot of these other people. So he's there for the second half of the 4th century, all the chaos of the creeds, and he was there during the years of Theodosius when he was emperor and he was making Trinitarian Christianity law. He was there for all that as a younger person. And then he lived right into the year 419. He came from a prosperous Christian family. He had an excellent education. Jerome was highly intelligent. He grew up with Latin, but not just like street Latin. We're talking about top shelf Latin. And he also mastered Greek and Hebrew. And for him, when somebody learns Greek today, a lot of times they learn ancient Greek because that's what the Bible's written in, and a lot of the church fathers are written in ancient Greek as well. He's living in the ancient times still, so for him it's just Greek. <laughs> and he could just speak it, and that's what people would speak and, and be able to read. And uh, to learn Hebrew was totally weird, totally unprecedented, not unprecedented because Origen had done that. But, uh, I mean, it was really, really exceptional for somebody from a Latin-speaking place to uh, go through the effort of learning Hebrew, which really changed the course of history for our Bibles, as we'll see in a little while. Uh, he lived a, kind of a loose life in Rome. He was uh, sexually active, but then he felt guilty afterwards. He kind of was raised in a Christian family, but he didn't really believe it or live it out, uh, until he was 19. In the year 366, he was baptized at 19 years of age and committed to follow Christ, said, you know what, I'm going to go be a hermit. I'm going to go live by myself in Syria, in the desert. And he goes off on his own, and he describes his own life of asceticism for that period of time. Uh, I don't remember how long he lasted, but I don't think he lasted that long. But this is his description of it. He says, How often when I was living in the desert, in the vast solitude which gives to hermits a savage dwelling place, parched by a burning sun, how often did I fancy myself among the pleasures of Rome? I used to sit alone because I was filled with bitterness. Sackcloth disfigured my unshapely limbs and my skin from long neglect had become as black as an Ethiopian's. Tears and groans were every day my portion, and if drowsiness chanced to overcome my struggles against it, my bare bones, which hardly held together, clashed against the ground. He's, he's laying it on a little thick. Of my, <laughs> of my food and drink I say nothing, for even in sickness, the solitaries have nothing but cold water, and to eat one's food cooked is looked upon as self-indulgence. Now, although in my fear of hell I had consigned myself to this prison, where I had no companions but scorpions and wild beasts, I often found myself amid bevies of girls. What? My face was pale and my frame chilled with fasting, yet my mind was burning with desire, and the fires of lust kept bubbling up before me when my flesh was as good as dead. Helpless, I cast myself at the feet of Jesus. I watered them with my tears. I wiped them with my hair. And when I subdued my rebellious body with weeks of abstinence, 
I do not blush to avow my abject misery. Rather, I lament that I am not now what once I was. I remember how often I cried out aloud all night till the break of day and ceased not from beating my breast till tranquility returned at the chiding of the Lord. Guy could write. I mean, come on. I used to dread my very cell as though it knew my thoughts. And stern and angry with myself, I used to make my way alone into the desert. Wherever I saw hollow valleys, craggy mountains, steep cliffs, there I made my oratory. There the house of correction for my unhappy flesh. There also the Lord himself is my witness. When I had shed copious tears and had strained my eyes towards heaven, I sometimes felt myself among angelic hosts and for joy and gladness sang, Because of the Savior of thy good ointments, we will run after thee. So he makes it sound like it was awful and awesome at the same time, which I think is actually a fairly good description of the Anchorite lifestyle because it sounds like it was really hard, but then you'd have spiritual moments where you'd like really connect with God, and you'd be like, wow. That's his description of it. While in Syria... As a hermit, somehow or other, he began learning Hebrew. I wonder how good of a hermit he was if he was able to find someone to teach him Hebrew. But he says he learned from a converted Jew that had become a Christian. He also encountered the Hebrew gospel, which was either the gospel of the Hebrews or the Hebrew gospel of Matthew. And so after a period of time, he left the Anchorite lifestyle and went back to Rome. In Rome... He served as a secretary to the Bishop of Rome. By then, who was being called the Pope. Of course, the Bishop of Alexandria was also called the Pope. So, you know, it wasn't like one Pope to rule them all quite yet, uh, but certainly held a lot of sway. And so, Pope Damasus I uh, had Jerome as his secretary from 382 to 385. A very prestigious position to have. Damasus commissioned Jerome to update the Latin Bible specifically the Gospels. The Latin Bible was done by missionaries. It was slapped together with duct tape. I mean, it was not well translated. It wasn't with good grammar compared to what spoken Latin would be. And so this was a cause of embarrassment in the West to have such a shoddy Latin Bible. In the East, they did not need translations of the New Testament. It was written in the language that the East spoke, which was Greek. So there's no problem. But in the West, you needed to have Latin translations, and they weren't that good. So the Pope said to Jerome, can you update this based on the Greek manuscripts that, you, that we can have better Gospels? And then he also updated the Psalms based on the Septuagint. Uh, and we'll, get, we'll come back to this. But like the Septuagint is a translation from Hebrew into Greek, and now Jerome is translating it from Greek into Latin. So you're getting farther away from the original. Jerome was obsessed with celibacy and asceticism. He loved telling everyone to be celibate and to not get married and to not enjoy life. Uh, that was sort of like one of his, <laughs> maybe that's being slightly unfair, to, to be ascetic. And he gathered a circle of wealthy widows around him from the highest class of senatorial families in Rome, the patricians, and he sort of like became their coach in ascetic living. And these, uh, some of them were called Leah, Marcella, and most importantly was Paula. He mentored them in asceticism along with their virgin daughters. Uh, in fact, he wrote many, many letters, like so much of Jerome's writings have survived to today. Forty percent of his letters were written to women. He was very, very involved with these, with these ladies. Uh, and this was controversial in Rome because it, asceticism was seen to be an Eastern kind of weird thing. Like there's Basil over there in Caesarea way out in Turkey. He's doing it, but that, those guys are different. And then you have these, these people down in the south in Egypt, and they're starving themselves in caves, whatever. But in Rome, it wasn't a thing. Benedict had not yet been born. Monasticism wasn't popular in the West yet. And so uh, Jerome is sort of doing this city monasticism where uh, he's like kind of like a gadfly and a coach, and 
also like a guru all wrapped into one. He got criticized considerably. Some thought Jerome was even opposing marriage, that Jerome was saying marriage is no good for anyone. This is how Jerome responded. I praise wedlock. I praise marriage. But it is because they give me virgins. I gather the rose from the thorns and the gold from the earth and the pearl from the shell. Doth the plowman plow all day to sow? Shall he not also enjoy the fruit of his labor? Wedlock is the more honored, the more what is born of it is loved. Why, mother, do you grudge your daughter her virginity? She has been reared on your milk. She has come from your womb. She has grown up in your bosom. Your watchful affection has kept her a virgin. Are you angry with her because she chooses to be a king's wife and not a soldier's? Talking about Jesus being the king. This is how Jerome writes. This is his obsession. <laughs> he really thinks everyone should be celibate. Uh, and he was a controversialist. He engaged in controversies his whole life long. He was criticized by the clergy of Rome. They accused him of an inappropriate relationship with these ladies because it was a little unusual to have a, a guy and, and to have these ladies looking up to him in this way. Wouldn't you know it, in 384, his patron, the Pope Damasus, died. At which point, Jerome was left without kind of like a sponsor, and he had made a lot of enemies, and then essentially the unthinkable happened. A young lady named uh, Blasilla died, uh, probably because she fasted too much. And uh, that was really the straw that, that broke the camel's back in this case, and Jerome took off. He left and did not come back. He thought he might have actually even become the next pope because he was right in line and he, and he wasn't chosen. So that would have saved him. But then when this, when this young lady, Paula had two daughters, Eustochium and Blasilla, and Blasilla died. She had been leading a kind of a hedonistic lifestyle and Jerome had confronted her and he'd only been working with her for four months, but she overfasted or, or something happened and uh, she died. So naturally, the people in high society blamed Jerome for her death, and he fled to Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem. And he lived in Bethlehem till the end of his life. While he was out there, there's lots of Jewish people, lots of people that can read Hebrew. He got more training in Hebrew. And essentially, he started in Bethlehem a co-ed monastery with Paula and her surviving daughter, Eustochium, these are fabulously wealthy people he's, he's working with here. These are not normal people. They are at the top level of society. So he's got all the resources he needs. He's training them in the Christian ascetic lifestyle. And so basically he becomes more or less a, like a research think tank person or a professor that doesn't have to teach classes. He just reads and he writes and he, he produces an immense amount. He remained extremely well-connected, even though he was living way out in the East with everyone through letters, and his letters survived. So we can read how he wrote to people. Joseph Lynch calls Jerome pugnacious, sarcastic. Pugnacious and sarcastic. You know, pugnacious, that's somebody that wants to, to, to fight. Sarcastic, you know what sarcastic means. And he condemns reading secular books. There's this epic story he tells that I have to, I have to read to you. So he will tell you in his own words, where he had this encounter with the day of judgment that changed him forever. Now, this guy is an educated, somewhat of a snobby Latin guy that just, when you're raised in a certain way, it's hard to read the Bible, especially when it's like in these missionary translations, okay? So this is kind of the setup for what happened with him. Jerome says, many years ago, when for the kingdom of heaven's sake, I had cut myself off from home, parents, sister, relations, and harder still from the dainty food to which I had been accustomed. And when I was on my way to Jerusalem to wage my warfare, this is when he went to go be a hermit for a little while, I still could not bring myself to forego the library which I had formed for myself at Rome with great care and toil. 
And so miserable man that I was, I would fast only that I might afterwards read Cicero. After many nights spent in vigil, after floods of tears called from my inmost heart, after the recollection of my past sins, I would once more take up Plautus. And when at times I returned to my right mind and began to read the prophets, their style seemed rude and repellent. I failed to see the light with my blinded eyes, but I attributed the fault not to them, but to the sun. While the old serpent was thus making me his plaything, about the middle of Lent, a deep-seated fever fell upon my weakened body, and while it destroyed my rest completely, the story seems hardly credible, it so wasted my unhappy frame that scarcely anything was left of me but skin and bone. Meantime, preparations for my funeral went on. My body grew gradually colder, and the warmth of life lingered only in my throbbing breast. Suddenly, I was caught up in the spirit and dragged before the judgment seat of the judge, and here the light was so bright, and those who stood around me were so radiant that I cast myself upon the ground and did not dare to look up. Asked who and what I was, I replied, I am a Christian. But he who presided said, Thou liest! Thou art a follower of Cicero and not of Christ. For where thy treasure is, there will thy heart be also. Instantly I became dumb, and amid the strokes of the lash, for he had ordered me to be scourged, I was tortured more severely still by the fire of conscience, considering with myself that verse, In the grave who shall give thee thanks? Yet for all that I began to cry and to bewail myself, saying, Have mercy upon me, O Lord, have mercy upon me. Amid the sound of the scourges, whoosh, whoosh, this cry still made itself heard. At last the bystanders, falling down before the knees of him who presided, prayed that he would have pity on my youth and that he would give me space to repent of my error. He might still, they urged, inflict torture on me should I ever again read the works of the Gentiles. <laughs> we have to keep going. Under the stress of that awful moment, I should have been ready to make even still larger promises than these. Accordingly, I made oath and called upon his name, saying, Lord, if I ever again possess worldly books, or if I ever again read such, I have denied thee. Dismissed then on taking this oath, I returned to the upper world, and to the surprise of all, I opened upon them eyes so drenched with tears that my distress served to convince even the incredulous, and that this was no sleep nor idle dream, such as those which we are often mocked. I called to witness the tribunal before which I lay, and the terrible judgment which I feared. May it never hereafter be my lot to fall under such an inquisition." I professed that my shoulders were black and blue and that I felt the bruises long after I awoke from my sleep and that thenceforth I read the books of, of God with a zeal greater than I had previously given to the books of men. I couldn't find a way to really shorten that little story, so I just read the whole thing to you. I mean, he just has such a way with words, you've got to admit. So what is the point? What is the takeaway? The takeaway is... Uh, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. And he didn't want to have his treasure in the delightful literature, classic literature that he so enjoyed. Perhaps we could draw a lesson here about watching TV shows or movies or whatever it is. You're, maybe you just like those 10-second movies called TikTok. Whatever it is you're into, right? Are you reading the Bible more? Are you spending more time with God? I think Jerome would uh, have some words to say to our society. Anyhow, he wrote lots of letters. In addition to the letters he wrote to women, he wrote letters to theologians, to clergy. The biggest thing that I need you to understand about Jerome, there will be some others, but the biggest thing is the Vulgate. The Vulgate is his baby. He worked on it from 382 to 405. It's a massive project. And he did the most unprecedented thing of the time, which is he translated the Hebrew into Latin. Everybody thought the Septuagint 
was inspired. Origen thought the Septuagint was inspired. Everybody thought the Septuagint was the Old Testament in Greek. But the Septuagint is an uneven translation. There are some parts that are really great and some parts that are not so great. And only when you can read the Hebrew can you see that. And no Christians could read Hebrew because the Jewish Christians were all kind of squeezed out of the church centuries before, you know, didn't have a, a role to play. So the first part he did in Rome, and then from 390 on, he was in Bethlehem. He translated for the Old Testament from the Hebrew, from the New Testament, from the Greek, and many thought this was just unacceptable. Even Augustine thought that was just ridiculous. What are we doing here? It was considered radical. It reminds me a lot of the King James only people that say, no, well, this is, this is God's words in, in the English language for all time, right? Even though the English language has like changed a lot since King James was alive. And we found a lot more older manuscripts than what were available at that time. Don't get me started. Uh, but uh, it was like that. So like, here's Jerome giving the church this translation in Latin from the Hebrew. And the church is saying, dude, we already have a translation from the Septuagint. Everybody knows the Septuagint's the word of God. And he's like, yeah, but like, it's sometimes wrong. <laughs> so um, he actually doesn't get many people to adopt his translation uh, during his lifetime. It's not until about the year 600 that it starts to really become the dominant translation of the Roman Catholic Church. And it remains so for century after century after century in the Latin language, uh, Jerome's Vulgate. He also translated Origen's book called On First Principles into Latin and got himself in a world of trouble with a heresy hunter called Epiphanius of Salamis, who pointed out that Origen was a heretic. And so Jerome, he doesn't want to have any, any association with a heretic, even though Origen's been dead for like two centuries. Like, Origen doesn't care what the fight is, right? So there's a big controversy over that we're not going to get into. He translated the rule of Pacomius, the guy who founded monasteries, into Latin. He translated Eusebius's chronicle, and uh, he wrote a book called The Lives of Illustrious Men, which is very helpful for church history stuff, because it's just a list of all these different people and short biographies of each one, which is phenomenal. Very helpful. Uh, he also wrote a commentary on books of the Bible. He's considered the second most voluminous writer of Latin Christianity, which makes you ask the question, who's the first? Let's go to him next, Augustine of Hippo. Woo! Here we go. 354 to 430, a contemporary of Jerome. They knew each other. They wrote each other letters. Sometimes they loved each other. Sometimes they hated each other. Jerome was not easy to get along with, okay? And he would blow you up in a letter. He was not shy about that. Anyhow, let's move on to Augustine. Also called Augustine. People say it both ways. He was born in North Africa in modern-day Algeria. His dad was named Patrick. He was a pagan not super faithful to his wife, not a real great guy either. And he died when Augustine was, I think, about 17, 16, 17. And he, he didn't really seem all that sad about it. <laughs> and then there's his mother. His mother is Monica. Monica is one of the most important mothers, probably the two most important mothers of the first 500 years of early Christianity would be Helena, Constantine's mom, uh, who was a Christian before Constantine was, and then Monica, Augustine's mom, who was a Christian before Augustine was. Okay? And she was very influential on his life, and you know, he, he writes about her as being a prayer warrior and, and really respected her a lot. You ever heard of Santa Monica in, uh, just uh, outside of L.A., California? Yeah, that's, that's our St. Monica, Augustine's mom. At age 11, Augustine got terribly sick, and... Monica thought he was going to die, so she enrolled him as a catechumen in the church, was making arrangements for his baptism. You don't want to get baptized young. You wanted to get baptized when you're old, okay? Um, because you're not allowed to really sin after that, at least not any, any serious, you know, so that, that was kind of still a thing. So he recovered, and his mom called off the baptism uh, so that he, he wouldn't be pigeonholed in uh, the Christian penance and so on. He had a fantastic education. 
At 16, his uh, father died. I, m- I mentioned that. And he was taken under the wing of a certain uh, wealthy person named Romanianus, who was a wealthy noble who paid for Augustine's education. So we got a first-rate education in North Africa. And if you want to get educated in North Africa, of course, you go to Alexandria. But um, Augustine is more west than that. So if you're in the western part of North Africa, you're going to Carthage. Carthage is the metropolis. It's the big city. It's where you're going to go. He got training in rhetoric. Rhetoric is the art of persuasion. It's what lawyers use. So he, he basically learns literature and he learns language. He's a Latinist like Jerome. The two wrote top shelf Latin. And he is really going to have a career. He's going to have a career. He's going to train lawyers. He's going to be in, in the higher levels of society. Even though he, his, by birth, he, he, was, he was kind of like middle class, if I could put it that way. So like of the upper class, he's at the very bottom. You know, he's not a poor person. His, his dad owns land and had maybe a couple of slaves. But like, he's, he's not doing, but this guy really hooked him up. And then he's going to have other opportunities to move up the ladder into the higher realms of society. He studied Cicero's dialogues, loved them, especially the Hortensius. Henry Chadwick said this. He said Cicero's ideal was personal self-sufficiency. Think about that for a second personal self-sufficiency, and an awareness that happiness, which everyone seeks, is not found in self-indulgent life of pleasure. In a self-indulgent life of pleasure, which merely destroys both self-respect and true friendships. So Augustine's reading this, from, this is like from the Hortensius, and he's reading about, and he just sort of like gets his mindset that's very common in their world. Cicero's not a Christian, by the way, uh, that you know, if you pursue pleasure, it's just not really going to satisfy you. What you really need to do is deny yourself pleasure. It was just in the water, in their world. I don't know how else to tell you. You know, it was just like common sense that's not common anymore. The Hortensius, uh, Chadwick says, also included a warning that pursuit of bodily pleasure in food, drink, and sex is distracting for the mind in the pursuit of higher things. Uh, Augustine totally does not accept any of this as a young man, but it's locked away in his head. Like, that's an intuition that's there. He taught in Rome, but the students were too rowdy, and they didn't really pay their bills. So he moved to Milan, and he was able to get a really great position teaching in Milan, which is in Italy, and he was on track to basically become a governor of a province. Um, that was kind of like starting to look possible for him. Augustine has a really fraught relationship with his own sexual life. As a young man, he tells a story about how he and a bunch of his friends as teenagers found a tree, a pear tree, and it was on somebody's property, and they just decided they're going to steal the pears. And so they went up to it and they stole all the pears. And they weren't even hungry, and they fed them to the pigs. And Augustine points to this story, and he, and he says, you know, you know why we did it? We did it for the thrill. You know, it was a lust to just like have those things that weren't allowed to us. He's like the most psychologically self-aware person in the ancient world. Really fascinating guy. He had typical youthful indulgences when he was a young man. He says, quote, I was burning to find satisfaction. I ran wild in the shadowy jungle of erotic adventures, end quote, whatever that means. Eventually, when he moved to Carthage to study, he said that, quote, all around me hissed a cauldron of illicit loves, end quote. He took a concubine when he was at Carthage and never named her in five million words that have survived to us, which if you figure 100,000 words per book, it's like 50 volumes of Augustine that has survived to, to us today. He lived with this woman for 13 years. She was the love of his life. He even said so later. And he never names her. Amazing. They had a son together named Ediodatus, who sadly died when he was 17. Uh, When Augustine got to Milan, his mother 
arranged a marriage with a noble woman, uh, but she was two years below the legal age of 12. Yeah, different world than ours, right? So this is his golden ticket. If he can marry this woman, Monica thinks he will advance to the next level of society, he'll move up a notch, and he'll be able to get his position as a governor of a province, really be, a, really be somebody, really be a successful person. But she's too young, so he's got two years. But Monica says to Augustine, you've got to send away your concubine. A concubine is a girlfriend from a lower status that lives with you, but you're not going to marry her, okay, just to define things a little bit. Uh, you take care of her. She's like a wife, but she's not legally a wife. She convinces him, and he sends her away. And he said it was like he ripped out his own heart. He felt like he never recovered from that. You know, it was just, it was just ter- terrible. But he could not remain abstinent. And he took another concubine for that two years while the girl was, was uh, getting to be older so that he could marry her. All right, let's talk about his exposure to Christianity. His mom, of course, Monica was a Christian, but he didn't like it. He didn't like Christianity. He had read a little bit of the Bible. But uh, in his own words, he says, It seemed to me unworthy in comparison with the dignity of Cicero. It's amazing how Jerome and Augustine, you know, who live on like opposite sides of the world, how well they pair as two people of the same time. He was turned off by the behavior of the patriarchs. He thought the, the genealogies of Matthew and Luke contradicted. He thought Christianity was for uneducated simpletons, a religion of slaves and women, you know, that sort of thing. He had a first-class mind and was philosophically, literarily, and rhetorically sophisticated and he was just like, Mom, I know you are a Christian. God bless you. I'm not interested. And he found the religion of the Manichaeans. Manny was from Persia. He lived in the 3rd century, so uh, sometime before Augustine. He self-identified as an apostle of Jesus, Manny of Persia. People do that, right? They're like, yeah, I'm, I'm the apostle of Jesus. You better listen to me, right? I call these people knuckleheads. Anyhow, he was kind of a Gnostic guy, and he disliked the material world, and he held to strict asceticism. No meat, no wine. He discouraged sex. And Manny and his followers, the Manichaeans, were hugely evangelistic. So they're kind of like Gnostics and kind of like Christians. And if we can add a third category of Zoroastrians, which was the religion of Persia, that's Manichaeanism. Yeah, so anyhow... This religion is illegal in the Roman Empire. Ever since the emperors started favoring Christianity, they started outlawing Manichaeism. But there's, there's lots of Manichaean churches around. And Augustine's just like, hey, maybe I'll be a Manichaean. And he does. He joins and he, and he becomes a Manichaean. Fortunately for him, there's two levels of Manichaeans. There's the elect and then there are the hearers. The elect don't have sex. The hearers are allowed to, but so long as it's not for procreation. So it's almost like exactly the opposite of the Catholic ideal, which was only for procreation. (laughs) So you have sex, just don't procreate in the Manichaean system. Henry Chadwick says, The Manichaeans regarded the lower half of the body as the disgusting work of the devil, the very prince of darkness. Sex and the dark were intimately associated in Manny's mind. So the the Manichaeanism has a strict dualism. You have light, you have dark, you have the good God, you have the evil God, and they're evenly matched. It's It's not the same as the Bible, okay? It's very different. And sex is one of the things from the darkness, so you don't want to participate. But cucumbers and melons, they're good. Specifically, those are mentioned as really good they're going to give you some good light in your, in your body, right? Uh, so Augustine was a Manichaean for nine years, and it was partly due to his Manichaean connections that he got the job in Milan. Over time, he started to question his Manichaean faith, and he had all these questions because he, he's, he's a philosopher, he's, he's educated, so he's like, well, how is it possible that this is true if that... And so eventually he finds a bishop, a guy named Faustus, and he asks all of his hardest questions too. And the guy totally didn't have answers. So Augustine kind of left the sect after a while. 
He'd also been an astrologer because that was very normal, very typical. People thought the configuration of the stars at birth determined your fate. And like sophisticated people thought this. It wasn't just like superstitious people. So Augustine is kind of into astrology. You know, many ancients thought the stars were not just like balls of gas. They thought they were living spirit creatures. Like Origen believed that. He didn't think they were just like physical objects. And so Augustine then met a man named Firminus who told him how he and a slave were born at the same exact time, right next to each other, and they had wildly different outcomes in life. He had a great life, a fabulous life of wealth and success, and the slave is still just being a slave in the same place that person was born. And so if they were born under the same stars, how could that be? And that was just like, Augustine's like, I'm not an astrologer. I don't believe in it anymore. That was it. That was it. So like, he just kind of burned through it out the other side. So I would, I would say like his first, his first religion, if I could call it that, was hedonism. He just pursued pleasure like so many hormonal teens do and just kind of burned through that. And then he's like, you know what? I'm going to go be a Manichaean. He did reproduce once with Adiodotus. But like other than that, he was pretty good as a Manichaean for nine years, right? And then, you know, he, he burned through that, and he was into astrology, for, and he burned through that. So, like, what's the next thing? You're going to think it's Christianity, right? It's not Christianity. Neoplatonism. So he becomes a Neoplatonist next. Next to Augustine, he began reading Platonic books, especially Plotinus and Porphyry. Augustine is limited. His Greek isn't very good, so he's reading Latin translations and... Not everything's available, but things are available to some degree. And so Plotinus, if you remember, was a fellow student of origin of Alexandria who studied under Ammonius, the founder of Neoplatonism. And I can't really get into Neoplatonism too much with you other than to say it's like Platonism, but turned into a meditative exercise where you have the whole Plato structure of the eternal forms and then our world, which is a copy of the real world, and we're all in the cave, and we want to get enlightened, and all that stuff, right? But Neoplatonism says, all right, well, let's just take a moment and meditate, and we'll take our mind's eye, and we'll turn it inward. And as we turn it inward, we'll ascend to higher planes of existence until we can basically cogitate or think about the highest, most spiritual, least physical aspects of the universe, namely God at the very top. Plotinus lived with minimal food, minimal sleep. He avoided meat. He never took a bath because it feels good. And his student, Porphyry, said he never celebrated his birthday and that he was basically ashamed to even be in a body. So that's Plotinus. Porphyry, his student, wrote a book called On Vegetarianism and said that the priests in the temple... In the pagan temples, the priests abstain from sex so that they can be pure to offer sacrifices. So the soul needs to be pure to attain the vision of God. Today, either you're you know, religious or, or you believe or you're an atheist. And, you know, a lot of times like, the idea is like, well, yeah, atheists have science and then like, people that believe have you know, their faith or whatever. This, is, this totally breaks those categories. These are the philosophers. These are, these are the scientists, the most educated people. And their goal is to meditate and see God. Isn't that fascinating? So Augustine is, is drawn to them. By the Platonic books, Augustine says, I was admonished to return into myself. I entered with my soul's eye, such as it was, saw above that same eye of my soul the immutable light higher than my mind, utterly different from all our kinds of light. It transcended my mind. What I saw is being, with a capital B, and that I who saw am not yet being. And you, God, gave a shock to the weakness of my sight by the strong radiance of your rays, and I trembled with love and awe. He's not a Christian yet. I was astonished to find that already I loved you, not a phantom surrogate for you, but I was not stable in the enjoyment of my God. I was caught up to you by your beauty and quickly torn away from you by my weight. With a groan, I crashed into inferior things. This weight was my sexual habit. But with me, there remained a memory of you, 
I was in no kind of doubt to whom I should attach myself, but was not yet in a state to be able to do that. So, uh, so there were many truths in Scripture that was not found in Platonism. And uh, he talks about that in his book called The Confessions, which we have to leave to you to read the whole thing because uh, we're running out of time here. But let me just tell you about his conversion and uh, his influence a little bit. So his conversion goes like this. He decided one day to check out Bishop Ambrose, who was preaching at the main church in Milan, just to listen to his rhetoric. Like, how good of a speaker is he? And he's really taken in by Ambrose's polish, his art of speaking. He's very interested to hear that Ambrose doesn't take any of the Bible literally, and he interprets it all allegorically because he's heavily influenced by origin of Alexandria. Okay, I told you this guy has a big shadow. And he sounded a lot more sophisticated than the, the country preachers he heard in North Africa. And uh, so he starts to give Christianity a shot. There's a long story of how that all happened. But then uh, eventually he gets this incredible conversion experience, and he writes about it in his confessions. He says, My old loves held me back. They tugged at the garment of my flesh and whispered, Are you getting rid of us? I hesitated to detach myself to be rid of them, to make the leap to where I was being called. Meanwhile, the overwhelming force of habit was saying to me, Do you think you can live without them? The debate in my heart was a struggle of myself against myself. Olypius stood quite still at my side and waited in silence for the outcome of my unprecedented state of agitation. I got up from beside Olypius and I moved farther away to ensure that even his presence put no inhibition upon me. I threw myself down somehow under a certain fig tree and let my tears flow freely. Rivers streamed from my eyes, for I felt my past to have a grip on me. It uttered wretched cries. How long? How long is it to be? Tomorrow? Tomorrow? Why not now? Why not an end to my impure life in this very hour? I was saying this and weeping in bitter agony of my heart. Suddenly, I heard a voice from the nearby house chanting as if it might be a boy or a girl saying and repeating over and over again, pick up and read, pick up and read. In Latin, that's tole lege. I checked the flood of tears and I stood up. I interpreted it solely as a divine command to me to open the book and read the first chapter I might find. Have you ever done that? Open a Bible and just see what it pops open to? For I had heard how Antony happened to be present at the gospel reading and took it as an admonition addressed to himself when the words were read, Go sell all you have, give to the poor. So I hurried back to the place where Olypius was sitting. There I had put down the book of the apostle when I got up. I seized it, opened it, and in silence read the first passage on which my eyes lit. Not in riots and drunken parties, not in eroticism and indecency, not in strife and rivalry, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in its lusts. Romans 13, 13, and 14. I neither wished nor needed to read further. At once, with the last words of this sentence, it was as if the light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart. All the shadows of doubt were dispelled. With a face at peace, I told everything to Olypius. From there, we went in to my mother and told her. She was filled with joy. The effect of your converting me to yourself was that I did not now seek a wife and had no ambition for success in the world. So, what happened next? Well, he put his name on the list for those to get baptized that Easter, and Ambrose baptized him, and then eventually moved down to a city called Hippo in North Africa, not far from where uh, he had grown up and gone to school and so forth. He was there one day at the church, and they noticed that he's super educated and competent, and so the bishop's just like, you're, you're going to be a priest now. And uh, just grabbed him and ordained him. And then a couple of years later, in the year 395, Bishop Valerius ordained Augustine to be a co-bishop, which is totally unprecedented. Uh, but I guess he knew he was sick, so he, he died shortly after that in 396. And Augustine took over in Hippo, North Africa. He took his job very seriously, 
and he served as a bishop for 35 years. He preached regularly. He held court twice a week, uh, judging cases that the government referred to the church. Uh, he wrote hundreds of letters. He counseled people. He attended church councils. He was always involved in lots of controversies, controversies with the Manichaeans, because he was an ex-Manichaean, so he's an expert on how to defeat the Manichaeans. Controversies with the Donatists, which uh, I wish I had time to get into with you, but the Donatists were a group that had split like 80 years before Augustine got there uh, because they didn't want to let the people back into the church who had sacrificed to the gods during the persecution. So they were hardliners. And in North Africa, I don't know, half the churches were Donatist churches and half were Catholic churches. The Donatist churches tended to be like the Berber language, the native language, and the Catholic churches tended to be Latin. And the Donatist churches had the poor people in them, which is like most people. And then the, the Catholic churches had the wealthy merchants and the aristocrats in them. So there's this huge division that had been going on, and, and, it, and it had turned violent, where these, they would attack each other, beat up bishops from one church and, and another. And uh, it was a really difficult situation. He was involved in all that. He also had controversies with a guy named Pelagius, well, more accurately his teachings. Uh, Pelagius said that people were born morally neutral. They could be good or they could be bad. In exceptional cases, someone might even live their whole life without ever sinning. And Augustine reacted strongly against that and said, no, we are born morally corrupted because of original sin that we've inherited to such a degree that we're not capable of doing anything good at all apart from God's grace. He had, had developed this idea of predestination, that uh, everyone is, well, all the elect, all the chosen, are picked by God ahead of time, predestined by God ahead of time. I don't really have time to get into that, but you can, you can do some research on him if you want to learn more about his ideas. I did want to say that this is worth the price of reading the Confessions, this quote right here. And it's right in the beginning. It's book one, chapter one. He says, he's speaking to God. He says, you stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Isn't that beautiful? That's Augustine at his best. Augustine is a complicated person, just like all historical people. In my judgment, he got a lot of his doctrine wrong. I, I think I probably wouldn't even agree with half of his beliefs, okay, just, just to be honest. Uh, but at the same time, I'm not going to say that he's just some wacko. I mean, he's a legitimate person, had these experiences, did what he did, and was very, very influential. He wrote a book called The City of God, and in this book, The City of God, he writes the following, And thus, beauty, which is indeed God's handiwork, but only a temporal carnal and lower kind of good, is not fitly love in preference to God, the eternal, spiritual, and unchangeable good. When the miser prefers his gold to justice, it is through no fault of the gold, but of the man. And so with every created thing, for though it be good, it may be loved with an evil as well as with a good love. It is loved rightly when it is loved ordinately, evilly when inordinately. The sin we commit is when we forget the order of things, and instead of thee, love that which thou hast made. This is an incredibly powerful idea of ordered loves. You liking pizza is not a sin. It's a sin if you like pizza more than human beings. Right? There's an ordering to loves. And Augustine is kind of an expert on that. And so that's just a little nugget from the City of God. The City of God's got a lot of other stuff in it that uh, talks about his take on the Bible, basically, you know, how he interprets Scripture and his theology is all in the City of God, especially the second half. What had happened is that in the year 410, a Visigoth named Alaric sacked Rome. And it was such an unprecedented event that all the pagans that were left in Rome, said, you see, this is what happens when you stop sacrificing to the gods. You know, all you Christians, you're the problem. We never had Rome sacked the whole time we were worshiping to the old gods. And so Augustine is responding to that in this book, A City of God, and trying to explain that in every city, there's two different kinds of people, 
And uh, it's not, you can't identify the Roman Empire as God's city. You know what I mean? It, which I think people had done because it had become Christian. All right, he, he wrote about the Trinity. He wrote commentaries. He wrote treatises. And John Howard Yoder points out that it is not surprising that Augustine, for whom the Constantinian church was a matter of course, should have held that the Roman church was the millennium. Not the Roman Empire, but the Roman church. Thus, the next step in the union of the church and the world was the conscious abandonment of eschatology. We're going to come back to this later. Eschatology is your belief about the end times. And so the idea is that rather than anticipating a kingdom, you anticipate dying and your soul going to heaven. So he did very strongly teach heaven as eternal life for Christians, for the elect. And then he clearly taught the eternal conscious torment of everyone else. And he taught the predestination of the elect, original sin, and, and a lot of other things. But let me just finish on this, and that is, and then we'll do our review. Augustine is the most influential Christian in the first thousand years. Like, I know I was like harping on origin being such a big deal. Like, he is a big deal, but like, after Augustine, he's the guy. His take on Christianity, his systematic theology, if you will, is what defines what Western Christianity is going to look like for a thousand years. Then, after a thousand years, an Augustinian monk comes along named Martin Luther and ignites the Reformation. And what does he reform the church to? He reforms it back to Augustinian Christianity. That's what the Reformation was. To a large degree, it was reforming the church back to the Augustinian form of Christianity. So he has a huge, huge influence. Let's review. Jerome and Augustine were influential Christians who shaped Christianity in the 5th century. Both received excellent educations and voluntarily chose ascetic, celibate lifestyles. Both were influenced by Origen, especially his allegorical hermeneutic. If you read their commentaries, they're always saying this really means that, and that really means this. Jerome's translation of the Bible into Latin from Hebrew and Greek, the Vulgate, became the official Bible of the Roman Catholic Church. Augustine had a fraught and lengthy battle with lust that eventually led him to celibacy. Augustine was a Manichaean, a believer in astrology, and a Neoplatonist before he became a Christian. Augustine battled Manichaeans, Donatists, Pelagians, and pagans throughout his career. He advocated original sin, infant baptism, eternal life in heaven, eternal torment in hell, predestination of the elect, and celibate clergy. More than anyone else in the first thousand years, Augustine's thought influenced Roman Catholic doctrine. And last of all, to a degree, the Reformation itself was a return to Augustinian Christianity. All right. Now that you're familiar with the Apostolic Fathers, with the Apologists and the Heresy Hunters and Jerome and Augustine, we can start to look at overviews of topics, which is what we're going to go to in our next session and the one after that. So we're, we're going to look at the Kingdom of God and we're going to see who believed in the Kingdom of God in the first 500 years of Christianity and who didn't believe in it and fought against it and eventually defeated the people who did believe in it and replaced it with heaven. So we're going to look at that next time as we continue in our journey through early church history. Well, that brings this episode to a close. What do you think? Come on over to restitutio.org and leave your feedback on episode 498, Jerome and Augustine. By the way, a lot of people say Augustine, and I was thinking of changing how I say it to Augustine for this but last year, I took a trip to St. Augustine, Florida, and I was just like, you know what, it's, it's pronounced Augustine here, and I think the British scholars pronounce it Augustine. So in the end, I decided not to go to Augustine, realizing that it is more common in America, but uh, old habits die hard. So hopefully, hopefully you won't discount what I say on the basis of how I pronounce Augustine as Augustine. Anyhow... On a previous episode, 478, which was an interview with Tom Husty called the Unitarian Anabaptist, uh, someone named Peter wrote in saying, yes, 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 
Brilliant interview, Sean and Tom. While I am not an Anabaptist, I identify with Tom's journey and challenges in so many ways. 100% agree with the thoughts expressed in this interview. I would fellowship with your church if I lived nearby. Very encouraging interview, guys. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to that interview I did with Tom Husta yet, go check it out. It's episode 478. And he also launched his own YouTube channel called The Unitarian Anabaptist, which is really an interesting combination of terms that you should totally check out. He's got a number of other interviews on there, the most recent of which is his interview with Pastor Talon Paul of Kokomo, Indiana. And there's some good stuff in there to listen to. I really enjoyed listening to that one myself. Also, someone named Neil wrote in on episode 175, The Trinity Before Nicaea. Uh, Before I read what he wrote, I did want to mention that this is in my top two or three most visited episodes of all time, at least the post on restitudio.org, maybe not so much the actual audio file because this one has received a lot of video views, over 40,000 YouTube views. And it's the presentation I gave where I went through Matt Slick's case for the Trinity before Nicaea and just systematically showed that in every one of the quotations that he made that the individual in question did not believe in the later doctrine of the Trinity, which wasn't formulated until the second half of the fourth century. Anyhow, Neil wrote in, Neil wrote in among uh, quite a few others, but Neil wrote in recently saying, When Origen spoke of the Father being greater than the Son and the Spirit, it was in a context to the way in which God is in things. He understood that the Father is in all things, even rocks, because the Father represents the very power of God being itself. The Son eternally comes forth from God, being God's word, as Ignatius rightfully says. Let me pause you there, Neil. Ignatius of Antioch is the most Roman Catholic-sounding church father before Nicaea, for sure. Now, we know that his collection of writings survives in three recensions, or versions. And those are called the long recension, the middle recension, and the short recension. Oftentimes, apologists will argue that the long recension was composed in the 4th century by Arians, while the middle recension, the one that sounds the most like the later doctrine of the Trinity, they say this recension is like a field of pure white snow upon which no foot has ever trod. Such a position, I think, sounds incredibly naive, perhaps as naive as it is convenient for defenders of the Trinity. Anyhow, to think that the longer and shorter recensions are both completely corrupted or partially corrupted, and that the middle is completely untouched by later controversy is really just unbelievable for me. It's an incredible idea. Now, I was actually planning to take a deep dive on this very subject, the Christology of Ignatius of Antioch, uh, especially after I got the book, it's a monograph by Paul Gilliam based on his PhD dissertation, Paul Gilliam III, that is, uh, and it's called Ignatius of Antioch and the Arian Controversy, in which he shows evidence for Christological corruption in the middle of recension. Nevertheless, I discovered a former student of mine was Further along in the research on the Christology of Ignatius, specifically in the Middle Recension, and that he too was planning on submitting a paper on this for the upcoming UCA conference. The UCA Unitarian Christian Alliance conference happens in October, but paper submissions are due, I think, the 1st of August, if I'm not mistaken. So anyhow, after finding out that he was going to be doing this topic, I switched gears and picked something else. However, I'm very excited to see what he will produce, and I'm leaving his name anonymous here because the paper review process is a blind process and I don't want to blow up anybody's spot or disqualify anyone for anything they might want to do. So I will certainly share with you what his research is on the middle recension and how he packages that and delivers it, whether it's just a paper or a paper and a presentation at the UCA conference or whatever happens, or maybe I'll just have him on as a guest and we'll do a a nice Uh, a nice interview or maybe even a series of interviews, depending on how much he has to say. But in conclusion, dear listener, 
Don't get too thrown when somebody quotes Ignatius of Antioch to prove some later idea about Christ's deity. He sounds super Benetarian because he's been tampered with by both sides of the 4th century battle over whether the son was equal or lesser than the father in age and status. And so uh, they, they left their fingerprints on the manuscripts that survive. All right, back to Neil. Neil goes on to say that the word is second to the father in his eternal relation. Uh, Let's take a look at that quote. He says, is superior to every being that exists, for he imparts to each one his own existence, that which each one is. He goes on, the father is superior because he imparts to each one from his own existence, including eternally spirating the son, so that in this way the power of the father is greater than that of the son and of the Holy Spirit. In context, Neil argues, it is clear that Ignatius believe the Father is greater in power in regards only to the Father in part. I think he meant to say origin there, because he had just been quoting origin, I think. Uh, And he said, the Father is greater in power in regards only to the Father imparting to each from his own existence. Father being existence itself, Son being the eternal word, and the Holy Spirit being the eternal will. So the Spirit is lesser still in this view because the Father and the Son are eternally spirate the Spirit. This is actually incorrect, but it is not a heresy that would damn one to hell. Origen had other heresies as well, which Aquinas points out. What is important to understand is that he indeed believed in Trinity. Uh, So says Neil. Well, thanks, Neil, for writing in. I'd have to argue that this is a non sequitur. It does not follow from the evidence you gave that Origen believed in the Trinity. Whatever formulation of the Trinity we're thinking of, I'm guessing... You want Origen to say that the Father, Son, and Spirit are co-equal, co-eternal, and co-essential. That's sort of like a minimalist claim for most Trinity theories. Now, you proved that Origen was a subordinationist who believed in three. I'm also a subordinationist. (laughs) Another word for a subordinationist is just Unitarian, just for the record. I'm going to throw that out there. We believe that there is only one highest God who is a singular individual. The Father. And now the Father is completely uncaused. He is not contingent on anyone or anything for his existence. He is ase, and he is the only one in that category. Ladies and gentlemen, that just is the definition of Unitarianism. So I'm going to go ahead and claim origin of Alexandria as a Unitarian with, sure, Trinitarian leanings. I mean, he believes that the Spirit is, in some sense, a conscious being, He believes that the Son always existed, but that the Son is not God in the same sense that the Father is God. So it's it's a different kind of Unitarianism than I hold to, but it certainly still sounds like it to me. Neil, you said origin is actually incorrect, but it is not a heresy that would damn one to hell. I agree. I also think Unitarianism will not damn you to hell. So I guess we agree on that. Now, it's interesting to think, too, historically, because Origen's speculations were taken up both by Arius and Athanasius in different directions. To claim Origen as orthodox with respect to the Trinity is to cherry-pick the parts of Origen that sound Trinitarian and ignore his obvious Unitarian leanings. Like when he says, you shouldn't pray to the Son since he's not God in the same sense as the Father is God, owing to the missing definite article in John 1.1. It's a super Unitarian sound. Actually, a lot of Unitarians wouldn't even make that argument. We'd say, well, that's lowbrow Unitarianism. (laughs) Anyhow, thanks for writing in, Neil. Uh, That talk on the Trinity before Nicaea, as I mentioned before, has received tens of thousands of views on YouTube and many, many downloads on this podcast, the audio version as well. That's episode 175. If you'd like to uh, listen to it, you can just search for Trinity before Nicaea in your podcast app or scroll down to episode 175. Also, I was thinking about how I spelled Nicaea. (laughs) Sometimes I'm a little insecure about pronunciation and spellings, I guess. But uh, I spelled Nicaea in a very modern way, N-I-C-E-A, when I did that presentation. Of course, you never know what presentations are going to take off and go viral and which ones are going to be watched by uh, three people and their dog and get buried forever. But this one apparently uh, did has taken off. I, I get regular visits to restitutio.org literally every day, uh, maybe even every hour 
visiting the page that I have there called the Trinity Before Nicaea. So anyhow, the old-fashioned way to spell Nicaea is N-I-C-A-E-A instead of N-I-C-E-A. And uh, I was I was thinking to myself, my goodness, did I just like invent this modern spelling? Because I don't know about you, but I always get kind of annoyed by Latin spellings of things that are archaic and difficult to pronounce, like the A-E-A sound. What What is that? It's not obvious that that would make the Ia sound of Nicaea. I was reading a very recent article from just a couple of years ago by Paula Fredrickson, who actually had been my professor at Boston University. I took a class with her there. And she used the modern spelling as well. So there you have it, N-I-C-E-A. It's the wave of the future, ladies and gentlemen. Um, and if you spell it that way, you will find what it is I'm talking about, Trinity Before Nicaea. Well, that's enough for today. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. In our next episode, we'll look at the kingdom of God and how people believed in the kingdom of God coming on earth as opposed to going to heaven for quite a number of centuries, in fact, before that belief mutated under pressure uh, from certain Christians who preferred more of a philosophical Platonist or Neoplatonist cosmology that privileged immutability over transience. I don't know if any of this makes any sense to you, but it will if you stick with us for our episode next week where we talk about the earliest advocates of the kingdom of God and the earliest attackers who eventually undermined the kingdom ideology and replaced it with heaven at death. So stay tuned for that next time. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to support us, you can do that on our website, restitutio.org, with either one-time gifts or monthly reoccurring gifts. Thanks to all of you who are giving. It really does help a lot. We'll catch you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.